the devil, if anything, prefers Pharisees, men and women who try to save themselves. They are more unhappy. They are more unhappy than either mature Christians or irreligious people. And they do a lot more spiritual damage. Hey, that's how we start today. And I can be like, well, he said it, but I quoted it, right? I I chose to quote it at this point and moment to you. But I want to shake us up a little bit because Pharisees, like me, like you at times, uh, need to be hit with something more than just a gentle rebuke. Need to be shaken a little bit. Need to be confronted a bit. Sin and evil are self-centeredness and pride that lead to oppression against others. But, but there are two forms of this. Usually we just think about the one form. We think about the person breaking all the rules. They're being bad. They say, I'm going to live my life the way I want. But then there's the person who keeps all the rules, trying to be good, and they're like, I'm going to follow the rules and become self-righteous. And both of those are painful. Uh, The second, Flannery O'Connor, she describes in one of her books about her character, uh, about one of her characters, has the kind of wisdom and insight to see this about another character and says it about this person. He knew that the best way, he knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. If you're avoiding sin and living morally so that God will bless you and save you, then sadly, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, a model, and a helper, but you're, you're avoiding him as Savior. You're, you're trusting in your own goodness, your own goodness rather than Jesus' goodness trusting in your own goodness for your standing with God rather than Jesus' goodness for your standing with God. What's crazy is that some of us can try to save ourselves by following Jesus. And what does that mean right now? It, It looks like Pharisees. But in that, trying to save trying to save yourself by following Jesus is a rejection of the gospel. It's really just a a Christianized form of religion. Which and how we use religion, what, what just do to earn God's favor. Ger, do to get enlightenment, whatever. Do to, to win heaven. So I'm saying is, some of you trying to avoid Jesus as Savior by breaking all the rules, and some of you trying to avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the rules trying to save yourself through good works. Now, doing that may produce a lot of wonderful moral behavior in your life. It may. But inside, can I tell you, because I've been there, what does it feel like? What's inside? Self-righteousness. 
filled with cruelty, bigotry, being miserable, always comparing yourself to others, never sure you're being good enough. And God is so gracious to us to show us because our hearts go this way. We tend towards thinking that the moral law, the moral law will change what's inside of us. But, but doing the external things, acting really, really good, isn't then going to make your heart good. And if it was like you're breaking all the rules and then that's how you swing, you know what you're swinging to? Self-righteousness. So now you're doing the things, cool, but you're filled with the self-righteousness. Why? Because you're building your identity on what you do, what you've accomplished, or your goodness. You can't act good enough to make your heart good enough. Did a, a religious person in the back need to hear that again? say it to myself then you can't act good enough Ryan to make your heart good enough Ryan my heart needs a transformation and what this text does it confronts us and says stop trying to save yourself you can't do this from the outside in what you actually need is outside someone outside of you to come in and transform your heart you need a, a physician this is way past your capacity and ability and even if you possibly had the ability you're going to do that to yourself <laughs> okay you need someone outside of you to come and change your inside to transform your heart and so we're with gideon we saw him called by god we saw him push back a little bit kind of like moses like like, I'm not the new Moses, right? And God's like, you're the, Moses, the new Moses. You get it? And then we keep going down it. And where we landed last week is where we start now in the famous fleeces. You ready? <laughs> I love nods. All right, verse 36 of chapter 6. Maybe, maybe that's why these, you'll see. Maybe that's why some of these soldiers got sent home. I want to hear you. You better respond, soldier. All right, chapter 6, verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by me, as you said, I will put a full fleece here on the threshold. I will put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know you that you will deliver Israel by me, as you said. And that is what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Verse 9, Gideon then said to God, Don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. That night, God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and dew was all over the ground. Interesting. 
That's what I have to say about this. Interesting. Right? I, we we were, uh, uh, got to go to the beach this week, and anytime we left stuff outside to dry, you know what happened? It got wet. All of it. Not just one shirt. All the shirts. And if things were dry, there wasn't just one thing out there wet. Then it got real dry, and they're like, this, I could use this scent. How can I trap this scent of letting my clothes dry in the beach sun? How can I capture that? Downy? I don't know. Uh, but what's interesting here is that Gideon treats God like a pagan, trying to manipulate him. And even more interesting is that God acquiesces. It paints God as more concerned about delivering Israel than quibbling with Gideon's semi-pagan notions of deity. God, God knows we are kids and he's a gracious father who wants to disciple us. That he's so patient, he deals with us even as we run away, even as we turn away from other gods and he disciplines us because he loves us to pull us here. And what does that look like? Well, really, it looks like discipling us out of treating him like we did our other gods, our former gods. And discipling us into living in a holy, joyful relationship with him and his people and with his creation. So you should be careful if this is your example of determining the will of God. If you're like, you know, you got a job coming up and you're like, we're going to pull out the fleece. You know what time it is, <laughs> you know. You got a couple in the barn just for it. Probably you don't, but you do have some things, right? You're like, if I see that, li if that, if that next license plate that passed me is a state that I was thinking about moving to, boom. It's like you live in Texas now, come on. I see a lot of other state <laughs> license plates here. You're really trying to move. And they're all trying to move here. So what's wrong? What's wrong? The funny thing is when Satan asked Jesus to test God for a sign, Jesus rebuked him in Matthew 4. And this text isn't even about determining the will of God because Gideon already knows the will of God. He's already been told. So it can't be your example for determining the will of God. And then if you also want to test God with a sign regularly, see Matthew 4. But this isn't about determining the will of God. Daniel Block says it this way. He says, the divine will is perfectly clear in his mind. Verse 16. Gideon's problem is that with his limited experience with God, he cannot believe that God always fulfills his word. The request for signs is not a sign of faith, but of unbelief. God has made his will clear to Gideon. God has called Gideon. God has clothed Gideon, clothed, clothed Gideon with his spirit. God has led the men to follow Gideon into battle, but he's still trying to get out of it. Still. So I told you, my favorite parts of these narratives is that it pulls you in and then it's like, ask you the question as well. 
or you can you can't I mean there's multiple ways to receive this so let me just lead you a little bit rather than self-righteously looking down at Gideon or these characters or even this situation rather maybe consider uh, I'm the Gideon not in the hero part but maybe in this part like what are you still trying to get out of What, what idol are you clinging to that hinders you from actually walking faithfully with God hand in hand and not with God plus a few other idols with you? What, what fear is it that's overshadowing you? What are you trying to get out of? What hard conversations do you need to have and you're refusing or avoiding to have? Is that personal enough? No? Okay, what person? What person are you refusing to move towards? Matthew 5 and 18 paints it if you sinned against them, they sinned against you, or if you think something has happened, the onus is on you to go to them because you've tasted reconciliation, you've tasted forgiveness. I'm not sure about them, but you have. How about one more? What, what truth of the Bible are you trying to shape right now? There's, there's like six offhand that are hot-button topics of our generation. I could list a six just trying to shake them off. There's probably one. There's probably one you're really wrestling with. Whether it be the truthfulness of Scripture, whether that be this is the best story that makes sense of the world, whether that be Jesus is so loving, he condones everything. It's not, did you hear me? That wasn't a statement of truth. That is what is trying to be pulled from you. Jesus so loves that he dies for, and in that dying confronts you that you need a savior. Remarkably, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, lets himself be manipulated by Gideon despite his people's lack of faith and love, God still loves and is faithful to us. He is more interested in preserving you than you are preserving yourself. And I know how much we like to preserve ourselves. Do you hear what I said then? I get it. And I'm saying he is more interested in preserving you than you are even of yourself. All right, we got to get going. Verse four, verse one, chapter seven. Jeroboam, that is Gideon, all the troops who were with him, got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. Mark that. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops. 
<laughs> Has that ever been stated? I don't know. You have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else, why, here it is, Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Now, the spring of Herod. Now, that's a form of the verb Herod, H-A-R-A-D. What does it mean? It means to tremble. The Israelites, when things happen at a piece of land, they name that piece of land after it. So what's happening? This is the spring of trembling because they're trembling here in fear, looking towards battle, looking towards what they're about to go to. And, and I joked with you a few weeks about Ice Cube said, if you're scared, uh, go to church. Well, well, God here tells them, if you're scared, go home. Go home. If you're scared, leave. And they have to publicly say, yes, I'm scared. What do, what do I know about scared people? They're usually scareful, <laughs> scared of publicly saying something in front of a bunch of other people. But their fear of death, their fear of war, is greater than their fear of public shame, and they say, me, I'd love to go home, bye. The numbers are 32K, and 22,000 leave. 10,000 left. That's over two-thirds of the army took up the, me, I'm fearful. Think about Gideon. I just assume he's shocked and dismayed, like shocked and dismayed, jaw to the floor. What? Number one, I, I, you, you, God, you, you twisted my arm to get here, and now you're taking troops. There's too many for you. I called them all here. You got them here to do this. I wasn't even confident in these people. We're going to take over two thirds of them. Yes. Why? God wants you to see who saves you. I wrote it that way so I can say it, a different emphasis at every spot because you need to hear it. God wants you to see who saves you. God wants you to see, to see who saves you. God wants you to see who saves you who saves you, who has saved you, who will save you, and then therefore what? Elevate him, boast in him. The idea of self-salvation, the concept of self-salvation, and then they're trying to execute that concept is founded on a deep misunderstanding of sin. The reality is you can defeat an army even when you have fewer numbers than the other army but you can't resolve the chaos and guilt in your heart if you think you can by yourself save yourself then you have deluded yourself you have a deep misunderstanding of what sin really is sin has alienated you from god from others from god's creation from even yourself. And apart from that, the Bible directly, directly, confrontationally, and lovingly 
says you're hopeless, guilty, lost, helpless, and walking in the way of death. Can you save yourself from that scenario? You can pretend that that's not your scenario and keep going and try to save yourself what the things that you actually will address and acknowledge in your life. And maybe you're like, oh yeah, I'm doing that, I'm keeping up. And completely ignore this. But in this real, if you will see the reality of your life, whether you have been breaking all the rules or keeping all the rules, this is your state. Walking in the way of death, what does that mean? The way of death is a life. That's what it says. The Bible is saying you have a life of the way of death. And the way of death is a life without God's love and without the Holy Spirit. The way of death is a life controlled by things that cannot bring me eternal joy. That leads only to darkness, misery, and then eternal condemnation. So I'll say it again. Can you save yourself from the way of sin and death? No. The honest answer is no. I have no power to save myself because sin so corrupted my conscience, my, confused my mind, captured my will. There's only, only someone outside of me can save me. And it can't be really another human like me because they're all kind of like me and they're drowning as well. So I can't ask another drowning person to save me, the drowning person. And beyond even that, the Bible paints it worse. We're not really drowning people. Apart from God, you're a drowned person. Dead, Ephesians 2 says. As if you were dead at the bottom of the ocean. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many troops. <laughs> oh, Gideon. I can't imagine. I mean, what? What? But I'm kind of proud of him. Doesn't say anything. Maybe he did. But God says, take them down to the water. I'll test them for you there. I'll test them. If I say to you, this one can go, he can go. But I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, you cannot go. So he brought the troops down the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouth was 300 men, and all the rest of uh, the troops knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. But everyone else, <coughs> but everyone else is to go home. So Gideon obeys, sent all the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 troops who took the provisions and the ram's horns. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, clearly. The first test is about fear and courage. About fear. If you're, if you're fearful, go home, right, is what that. They said yes. So we've got this courageous people. Now what's courage, really? It's confidence in God in the face of fear. That's what it is. That you still have confidence in God. That this fear and whatever is bringing you fear as you scan the horizon, what might even come, that that fear doesn't overshadow your confidence in God, but your Verse 8, finish with what happened. And so I just want to tell you that that first test is about fear and courage. 
but we're really not exactly sure about this. It, it seems to be about inattentiveness, carelessness versus alertness. I'm saying it seems to be because it doesn't say, and I've told you some of the Old Testament narratives don't exactly tell you the motivation or why this is happening, or even if, if this is a good or bad thing. Just kind of have to decide by the, the character's words and actions. But, but if you think about this, you've got someone just sticking their face in the water, face down, drinking up like a dog. What does that mean? Well, they've given over to their, they're thirsty, they're tired. So that their desires in that moment overwhelm their sense of alertness because nothing's changed for them. For this 10,000, they're still soldiers. They've just been brought to drink. And so it seems like how they're drinking, something's off. Well, the problem, I think, is that an aloof, careless soldier will hinder the mission and sometimes injure fellow soldiers. And so secondly, you, you are a soldier, not a civilian. And if you're like, oh, you're taking this Old Testament text and forcing this, actually not. The Old Testament text just illustrates clearly a New Testament reality. Second Timothy 3 says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, you don't have an option of being a soldier. You have, I guess, the option of being a good one or a bad one. But you are a soldier. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. So can you, can you picture that, that with me? You've got guys just face down, like not even looking. And then you get others that get down and they pull up the water to themselves and they keep eyes out and they can see. And they're what? Alert. They're soldiers. They're not entangled with their immediate thirst. They're thirsty. They have to. They, you know, they've been traveling, walking. Be vigilant. Scan the horizon. Attentive to the commanding officer. First Corinthians 13, 16, 13 says, Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Literally act like men. Be strong. Be strong. Be courageous. Confidence is what I was saying. That confidence in God in the face of fear and opposition. Verse 9. That night the Lord said to him, Get up and attack the camp, for I've handed it over to you, but you are afraid to attack the camp. Go down with Peter, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he went down with Peter, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, the Malachites, and all the people of the east had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts. You know what that means? You can't see the ground. You can't really see any resources now because they're gone. The locusts came. A swarm of locusts and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. I, I was at the beach this week a little bit. Do you know I can't even count the grains of sand in the bed that I get into after I'm at the beach and, you know, some, some falls off my feet? Listen, this is how many camels there are. And do you remember where's Gideon at? 301, right? 
And I want to point that out to you. It goes back verse 10. God is so gracious that he proactively serves Gideon. Not, not waiting for, I'm scared, I want to go. He says, but if you are afraid, I've got something for you. When Gideon arrived, verse 13, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. His friend answered, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. What? I, I've never interpreted dreams. How'd you get that? What, what's going on? Now, this should make you think of Joseph's dreams and Joseph interpreting dreams back in Genesis. But, but it is interesting in, in the Old Testament that only in exceptional cases like Balaam does God speak to non-Israelites uh, through visions or oracles. He typically speaks to them through dreams. And he does here again. And even sometimes through absurd dreams like a loaf of bread. Falling through a military camp and smashing into a tent. But how, how can this message be derived from this dream? How's Gideon the loaf? How does he know Gideon's name? Why is the tent the Midianite camp? Why does he interpret it negatively? Because if anytime I dream about bread, I'm like, yeah. I could eat some. I'm, I must be fasting from it this month. I just, I just the hunger for some carbs. Let me go. That's what I think. I think, hey, a, a loaf of barley rolls, and I think that means our God's going to give us a ton of bread, and it's going to hit us, and we're going to eat so much, we're going to fall over and collapse. That's how I'd interpret it. That's how some of, you know, charismatic friends interpret Everything's positive, right? It's always a positive thing. Well, how? Verse 11 is how. God gave the dream and God gave the interpretation to encourage Gideon. That's how. This thing that doesn't even make sense, doesn't even make like how this guy could interpret this, is God gave both. Gideon is there because he's scared of this fight and he finds out that they are fearful of him. That's what God does to encourage Gideon. You're so scared? Go, I'm going to show you. They're scared of bread in a dream. <laughs> like, that's how powerful I am. I didn't even, I didn't even threaten them with, with weaponry. I, I rolled a bowling ball of bread into the dream, and the guy's like, ah, that's how powerful I am. You're, they're fearful of you. They're fearful of you. Be encouraged. God is involved. God is involved. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to Israel's camp and said, Get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a ram's horn in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other hand. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our ram's horns, you also are to blow your ram's horns all around the camp. Then you will say, For the Lord and for Gideon, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their ram's horns and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies, 
blew their ram's horns and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hands and their ram's horns to pull in their right hands. And they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each Israelite took his position around the camp and the entire media army began to run and they cried out as they fled. And now, if you don't know the story, what do you think? You're like, that's a hundred men in a triangle shape. They'll figure this out, right? But you know God's involved, so you know that something, something's got to happen. Something's got to happen. What is God going to do? The Lord caused the men, verse 22, when Gideon's men blew their 300 rams horn, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. So there, there's some estimation of what might have happened. Well, maybe it was a turn of night watch. So everyone that was going out to watch uh, for the night is going out. Everyone that's coming in. Uh, so they're kind of overlapping. And then, and then God orchestrates it where it happens all the same time. So then everyone wakes up and they see a bunch of people outside. And they think, oh, we're under attack. So what do you do? What do you, what do, you do when you get woken up out of a deep sleep? I, I, I get angry. I don't get angry. I am angry. That's what it is. I'm just angry. What do they do? They wake up and they're like, we're under attack. Kill them. And the people, people in the streets are like, what? No. I guess we are now. You know, the Lord caused them, whole army, to turn on each other. Then they flee to Cage House in the direction of Zerera, as far as the border of, and near Tabith. Then the men of Israel were called from Atali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the whole country of Ephraim with this message. Come down to intercept the Midianites. Take control of the water courses of head of them. So all the, Ephraim, all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took control of the water courses as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. Told you they named things after what happened. They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Now this is a perfect inclusio of Gordon, Gideon's story because it begins with Gideon in a wine press hiding, fearful, scared, doing an outside job in a central dungeon. No wind. And God shows up and says, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Meets him in a wine press. now with the wine press and the rock rock with 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 Gideon as well both of these and so it ends here with the rock of Oreb and the wine press of Z this is their defeat or to say it much better and beautifully and what you're supposed to see from this story is God saves his people again God saves his people God saves his people, meaning you don't have to and you can't. That God provides. Now, if you're, you're not a Christian, but what does this mean? Well, it means stop trying to earn whatever that is to get to that place of enlightenment, that place of really understanding this world. Or that sense of, if you are wrestling with God, of like, I, I want to be in his favor. 
and see that the good news of Jesus that separates him apart from every other religion, philosophy, and worldview is that he has done for us rather than we have to do for him. Before we ever get to following him, serving him, obeying him, we're safe because we're saved by him. Meaning, point three, Jesus, the bread of life, rolled into the enemy's camp and smashed it for us. That we know that the Gideons are not the true heroes because there's too much like us and they keep failing. And it all points to, no, we need a king in Israel. We need a king that would set us right and make us not just do what is right in our own eyes and, and have the power to actually change us from the inside out so that we would see things even differently. And that's what God does. Rolls the bread of life into your heart and smashes the idols and breaks them apart and makes them collapse and says, this is my home now. This is my tent now. John 1 says, God sent Jesus and Jesus came to tabernacle with us. Well, what does it mean when Jesus sin, when he ascends and leaves? He then sends the Spirit to do the same thing. To be with you. To tabernacle with you. You being the literal now temple of God's Spirit. But if you're like, I, I don't know how God has saved my enemies. Well, God reorients how you even think about your enemies because your enemies aren't flesh and blood. They're not Midianites. They're not people that look different than you. They're not that, that annoying co-worker. They're not that frustrating in-law. They're not that political party. That's who you're not fighting. That country, we're not fighting. What we are fighting against, your true enemy is Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus comes and defeats as a bread, a piece of bread, defeats these terrifying enemies dies in your place to forgive you and reconcile you raises from the grave to give you new life he wants you to see his salvation he saved you because he loved you He saved you that you'd see his salvation, boast in him, that you'd live for his glory. This is, this is even pre-judges. You go back to Moses and Moses speaking to the people in Exodus 14 said, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. And then you're like, okay, well, that's then. What about us? Well, then Paul picks that up and says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I know boasting. 
Uh, I'm good at it. I grew up in a culture of hip-hop that that's, that's what it's about. Bragging on things I have when I don't have them yet, but I'm going to get them after y'all pay me for listening to this thing that I say I have, all right? And so I know how to brag. I can brag. But what I want from, from this text for me, I'll speak for myself. I, I want for myself to be like a flavor flav hype man on Jesus that would just brag on Jesus all the time. Yeah, yes to Jesus. This is the one that saves me. This is the one that is saving me. This is the one that's still working in my heart, fighting the idols with me in my heart so that I would grow more and more to his image. This is the king who loves me, who saved me, who is working all things for my good. So I want to boast in him. I want to brag on him. And I, more than like a, a Sunday morning brag fest here, I want that. I want more of it for me. That'd be, I'd pray as we talked to our membership class last week, prepared, ready to come in here to worship, to boast in Jesus. Sometimes, yes, dragging rear to get here on Sunday morning to be refreshed, but also sometimes coming here excited because I've been tasting of God's goodness all week, and I'm so amped to gather with other brothers and sisters that want to boast in Jesus with me. Philippians 3.3, Paul puts it this way, for we are the circumcision, circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. You see that little sandwich? What he's saying is, we have the most to boast about. You Gentiles, you, you don't even really even boast. You're going to boast in what? You're nothing. We actually have something to boast in. We're not going to boast in it. We're going to boast in the Lord. We're not going to put confidence in our flesh. We're not going to put confidence in us keeping the rules. Self-saving ourselves by our keeping the rules. Now Ephesians 2 says, You're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. God wants you to see who saves you. I, I didn't save myself. Jesus saved me. I'm going to stop trying to save myself because Jesus is saving me. I can trust the future of what's going to happen, that he's going to save me. So I'm not even going to worry about that. I'm going to boast. I'm going to boast. I'm going to boast. I'm the hype man, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout my week. That's what I want for myself. I, I want that coming from my lips. I, I, I know how to talk about, I don't know how to. I guess I do. I know how to talk about money. I know how to brag on, on accomplishments. I know I've heard so many people brag on material possessions throughout my whole life. And I'm I'm almost 40. I'm almost a man. And I've met a lot of those people. And uh, I've, I've, never, I've never seen long-term joy exuding from them. I 
but the, the people in my life that are older than me, that are sweet and tender and lovely and ferocious and strong, they boast in the Lord a lot. They tell me a lot about what he's done in the past, and they keep telling me what he's doing now because they're old and wise, but they're mature and humble enough to know that they're still growing. I want to boast more with you. Boast more in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we do. Uh, right now, your salvation is good and perfect and lovely. True and deeper than what I've done or tried to do for myself. Working on superficial actions and even superficial identities when, when Lord, you've given me us the deep identity of being saved by you, changed by you, adopted into your family. So, so Christ, I, would you grant us a work of the Spirit that we would uh, taste and see right now that you are good. that you are the king and that even if we're trying to avoid it, deny it, or squirm from it, you are the savior. In Christ's name, amen.